0: Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. In today's episode, we're going to dive into the world of digital identity. My guest today is Amit Singh. He was one of the panellists who conducted a review into MyGov, and for our international audience, that's Australia's digital government services platform. Most excitingly for me, though, in my view, Amit is one of Australia's most thoughtful thinkers on tech policy. So Amit, it's really wonderful to have you here today.
1: Thank you very much, and that was a very generous introduction.
0: Oh, well, it's all true. And it's not just me who thinks that. I know many others as well. You've had such a fascinating career. Uh, You've worked on economic policy for Uber in San Francisco. You were one of the founding partners of the firm Alpha Beta. You've worked for a couple of Australian prime ministers, Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd. You're on the board of Reset, which is a really innovative NGO dedicated to tackling digital threats to democracy You're doing some really interesting consulting work at the moment. There is a lot of diversity in your CV, but there's also some really clear common threads around technology and public policy. So before we dive into the digital identity issue, can you maybe just talk to us about what it is about technology and public policy that attracted you in the first place, but perhaps more interestingly, what keeps you interested in this field?
1: I think the thing that keeps me interested is the fact that it's constantly evolving, I think what is interesting about public policy and technology and what I think has kind of led to this convergence by accident really more than anything else, (laughs) is the fact that actually the challenges that we have always thought about in a public policy context are actually unlocked in a way if they are integrated with a technology solution. And in a way, Mm. the way I sort of think about technology is that technology is the tool To enable you to achieve public policy outcomes at scale. And we live in the most exciting era of public policy because we have more technology tools than previous eras have had. And I think what's really interesting is the ability to influence technology, the ability to influence the development of technology policy, the ability to think about how we can leverage technology and technology policy to achieve those public policy outcomes. I think is an incredibly exciting opportunity. More than anything else. One of the favorite quotes which I've said to you before Joanna is um is Kranzberg's sort of first law which is technology is neither good nor bad nor neutral mm. and I actually really think that that's why that's where public policy comes in because public policy does have a perspective. Public policy is is directional mm-hmm. you know I mean, um, and when you combine the two things together it actually gives it a sense of kind of purpose and direction but I think what it also does is it actually allows you to think about ways in which you can Think about future services and think about the way in which they're they're delivered.
0: Mm. And I love that law. In fact, I actually had cause to reread the article that sets out because he has seven laws. Seven laws, yeah. And it is it is such a good article. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll we'll put it in the pod notes. But I'm also going to tweet out the seven laws.
1: I think what's fascinating. I think what's fascinating about the the, the about Kransberg laws is that Cransburg wasn't like some famous no. Stanford engineer, right? Like it wasn't. This wasn't done by. That's what I actually think is kind of something kind of endearing about it, right? Yeah. This wasn't like an MIT or a Stanford professor worried about, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, dystopia something like that. This was actually a pretty, you know, Kranzberg was a well-known academic. You know, I mean, had written great articles, but he was, you know, I mean, he, he taught at a Midwest university. Like this was actually about bringing it to the masses, and you know, that's what I really liked about
0: it. Yeah, and and he was a historian, right? So he was looking at it from a, the history of technology, which is. Yeah so you know it really um reinforces the message that this podcast is about is that you don't need to have specialist tech expertise to work in this field in fact some of the most sensible conversations come from people who don't necessarily have that deep tech background, but aren't scared to ask about the tech and aren't scared to get engaged in those questions. So I'm going to do something um, that I know um, people don't particularly love, which is quote something back that you have previously said. I think this was um, around the time you got your 40 under 40 recognition in 2021. And you said, earlier on, I have a tendency to pick the safe option, Which, but since then I've made various career moves over uh, the years and I've become more confident to skating to where the puck is going rather than to where the puck is. And so that's leading into my next question, which is just about the general state of technology policy in Australia. So do you think we're in a in a good position at the moment? Um, where is the puck going in terms of technology policy at a national level here?
1: Yeah, I'm actually very excited about technology policy in Australia. Me too. I'm very excited about it for a different reason than I thought I would be excited about it. Oh, interesting. I was excited about it, you know, with a change of government largely because we now have an incredibly tech literate cabinet. I mean, I think we probably have our most tech literate cabinet in history. Yes. So in many ways, you know, that's, that's some reason to be excited because now there are people around the table that think about this in an inherent way. But I actually am excited for a different reason. And that is actually because for the first time in the history of the Australian Commonwealth, the um, finance minister, the data and digital minister, and the public, re- you know, in the public sector reform minister is exactly the same person. Mm-hmm. And that, other than the fact that it puts an incredible amount of pressure on her. And means that she's doing seven jobs instead of one, which you know, I mean, each of which are very important and difficult jobs. I think the combination of all those factors actually provides us with a very unique window to do a lot that needs to be done here. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's always been an opportunity. The digital sector, the tech sector in Australia, has always been strong despite, in spite of itself. You know what I mean, like like in a way, we've created great, we've created great companies. We focused on great technologies. We've made huge advances, but 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 the missing piece in it is the four hundred billion dollar gorilla not coming to the party, which is the federal government. Mm -hmm. And when that does that, it creates a huge amount of innovation ripples through the economy. And I think what we're about to see is the that four hundred billion dollar gorilla finally wake up to the digital party. I mean, and when it does, I actually think it creates a whole range of consequences throughout the whole economy, and. Positive consequences for some of our great private sector companies. I mean some of our great companies that have gone overseas and gone and done great things overseas. I think all of those things are actually enabled by this. So yeah, so 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 my 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 kind of excitement is about that. And the reason why I'm excited about that is because there are different ways in which governments influence markets. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to be the funder of that market. They don't necessarily have to be necessarily have to be the regulator of those markets. Those are the most common and direct ways in which we think about the roles that governments can play. But governments can be investors of markets, they can be catalysts in markets, they can be influencers in markets, they can play multiple roles in markets. And what I think is really, really interesting, and what we've seen, particularly towards the back end of last year around issues around cybersecurity and around, you mean, identity theft and all those other kind of questions is that there's actually, it all still comes back to a kind of role that the government plays. Mm. The unfortunate thing is actually until very recently, the government has been the sleeping gorilla. And... That's the really exciting part about this space.
0: Well, I think we have the title for this podcast episode, Sleeping Gorilla. Um, I love that. I think uh, Katie Gallagher, the minister that you were you were referring to, is also someone who's focused on these issues as well, which is really an incredible opportunity. Yeah. In September last year, the government asked an eminent panel of people uh, to come together and review the current state of MyGov, which is the platform that is uh, the entry point into digital services for the Australian government. That panel was led by the former Telstra CEO, David Thodey. We also had Professor Ed Santo, who leads up the Human Technology Institute at UNSW uh, and who is Australia's former Human Rights Commissioner. We also had uh, Julie Iman Grant, Australia's Current eSafety Commissioner and Professor Emily Banks, a social epidemiologist, as well as Amit Singh, who we're talking to today. So let's let's turn a little bit to the MyGov audit before we dive right down into what's going to happen next in terms of digital identity. I just wanted to do a, one of the the things that jumped out to me when I looked at the recommendations in the report was the framing of digital identity as critical national infrastructure um, and the observation that until recently digital uh, identity had been basically treated like some other IT product rather than something that was um, critical national infrastructure. I think that's a really, to me, that was the most important finding uh, in the MyGov audit uh, report. Can you just talk us through the process of, of making or coming to that conclusion?
1: What was really important for us was actually thinking about the holistic picture around how we think about government digital services. The reality is, is that most times when government digital services or any digital service fails, it's not often because of a lack of technology. It's not often because the solution can't be architected or the solution can't be kind of designed. It's usually because there's a problem Mm -hmm. with governance, there's a problem with funding, there's a problem with expectations management, defining the problem in the first place, I mean, and the solutions around it. And when you think about that more and more, when you think where all of those other considerations are important in the delivery of government digital services, then you inevitably come to this conclusion that it's actually a fundamental platform for the delivery of those services for all of government, and that it is like core critical in national infrastructure. Another way to think about it is that more people access MyGov then use public transport in all of Australia in any single day. I mean, And so if you've got that level of engagement and where, unlike other products, there is an imperative of government to make, for people to use this because Mm -hmm. it actually improves the ability for government to deliver, as we saw during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. then you have to think of it as national infrastructure. You have to think of it as an important platform that you invest in. You have to move away from what currently is the case where... Mm. It is funded as a program. Mm. It's funded for periods of time. It's thought of as something that, you know, sits as a sort of, like that's why we, we sort of say it's not an app, it's not a service, it's not a program. Mm. It's actually a platform and it's infrastructure.
0: Mm. And it really resonates for me as well, uh, having come back from India, where there's a lot of conversation around digital public goods and uh, the the rationale behind Uh, government services needing to be public digital goods. And while I was there, I listened to um, a speech that was given by Sharad Sharma, who's one of the architects of a lot of India's digital infrastructure, which is extraordinary uh, in terms of what they've done in such quick periods of time. But he made the observation that You know, we take for granted things like that highways or telephone um, services are public services. Um, But actually, when roads were first invented, well, first used, particularly, for example, in the US, they were actually privately owned, privately run. And it wasn't until the 60s when Eisenhower passed the, uh, the Interstate Roads Act that it actually became settled that public roads were public infrastructure. And he, the argument he was making is that we need to start thinking about digital services very much in the same way that you know maybe some of this infrastructure still is privately built, but we need to make a decision about what of it needs to be driven for the public. And you know I think Australia has such a proud history of having really good public infrastructure, really good public services, you know including with our hospitals and and Medicare and the like. So to me this is an extension of it, and I was really excited to see that come out so clearly in the uh, audit panel report.
1: The one thing I'd add to that is when you do conceive of things as public goods, you also get better at giving yourself the full gamut of regulatory tools to deal with that. I mean, or the full full extent of what government can do, less regulatory tools, but the full extent of what government can do. Exactly. Yep. And there is private infrastructure in Australia or privately funded infrastructure, but they are access undertakings about how they kind of operate, you know what I mean, like there, there are a whole range of ways in which government can play a role in supporting that in terms of the delivery of services. So, it, it's actually the conception of it as, pub, as a public good is exact and actually unlocks you thinking about those types of things.
0: Mm, yeah, exactly. And I'm just thinking when you're talking about public infrastructure, privately owned, a lot of the roads, for example, in um, Northwest Western Australia built by mining companies, but the access requirements. So when we talk about digital identity, I think probably um, rather the elephant in the room is why do we even need it at all? Um, so do, I'm sure that's something that you've grappled with. Um, what's wrong with the existing identity system that we have?
1: I think that the, the challenge on the challenge in digital ID is that um, our ability to kind of access and come into these coming to these particular systems to be able to use these particular services requires. Uh, a degree of kind of verification and authentication. And um, it's not purely a kind mm. of security measure, it's actually also an efficiency measure. I mean, if we get that right, where the entry point mm. is kind of settled, where as you are able to access more of these services digitally, because in order to access more of these services digitally, to ensure that you've got the kind of full benefit of the integration of services and the integration of data, the most important thing is making sure that that's credible, make sure it's, it's the right... It it, it is the actual person that you are dealing with. And that's why I think at Mm. a principle level, it's really important to get that right. But getting that right also means that you can do away with all of the multiple ways in which we verify ourselves when we actually try and access digital services today. And so that's why I think think digital ID itself is kind of important. I think one of the things that is a challenge of that is that we don't... Australia is one of very few countries in the world that doesn't have a unique citizen identifier for every citizen, right? I think I'm going to get this number mm. wrong and someone's going to correct me, but I think it's like one of only six countries or something like that. Now, for different reasons, we have chosen that, right? Mm. And we have to respect the fact that we chose that, right? Like I am you know, still fundamentally at my heart, a lawyer. And so, you know, all of those things are layered on from history and all sorts of other things. And we've kind of come to that conclusion somehow. Now, it is possible that the will of the public is different today, but we have to understand why we kind of came to that. So we don't have social security numbers. We don't have any other kind of way in which there's a unique citizen identifier. There are proxies for those, you know, in which a very you know decent proxies for those, you know, driver's license is a decent proxy for that. Medicare, you know, Medicare card numbers are a decent proxy for that, but they're, they're not, um, um, but, but even those are kind of limited. Medicare card numbers are issued at a kind of family unit level. Um, uh, um, you know, driver's licenses are, driver's licenses are only issued to a certain group of people that can drive. I mean, it excludes a huge number of the population. Um, so yeah. actually like thinking about a way in which you can identify a person to be able to deliver those services is really important. But I think it's the other side of that equation, which is how do you give people trust that moving into this kind of digital ID world gives you the kind of capacity to trust that it's actually used for that purpose of being able to prove to who you are, you know what I mean, and prove who you are in that now part of that solution is a technology one and it's about the evolution of technology in that mm-hmm. space and there's things like verified credentials there's things like decentralized kind of identity that can sort of support mm-hmm. that but there's also most of that is actually a public policy challenge yeah. Most of that is about how do we articulate the degree of protections for individuals in that in that exercise how do we you know, I mean work out ways in which there's um, opportunities for redress, how do we offer people more information and build a public confidence in the way in which we do that? So I think all of those things are kind of part of the broader, broader equation. But I think the kind of question around moving into the kind of world where we sort of think about why we need a digital ID is really about shifting this kind of this big sort of seismic shift about where digital services isn't just a nice way, a nice alternative channel. It is the kind of core way in which we access and you know live in the kind of modern economy. Mm.
0: You've been listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. This only takes a few moments of your time and it really does help us to promote the podcast and get more people involved in these important conversations. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. You were also talking there about the importance of trust and confidence. And, you know, I think particularly in the Australia context at the moment, um, for those of us who are nerds, we've been watching the Debt inquiry and, and, and the responses that have come out of that, where we have an example of um, perhaps a government service that was tried to be made digitised, but uh, with a result that was, um, you know, definitely not the result that was desired. Um, how much does that play into the thinking? Uh, we're talking about digital identity as something that's important for Australia. Do you think it's something we can roll out with RoboBet Debt kind of sitting there?
1: I'm really pleased you brought up RoboBet Debt. I've, this is the fourth conversation I've had on um, government digital services this week. And this is unfortunately the only one which I didn't say it or before you said it.
0: Oh, okay, great.
1: So I'm, I'm, I'm actually really pleased that you brought it up because that's part of the reason why I think we are in that inflection point where we have to have the conversation about government mm. digital services because that will force it. I mean, and I'm, I think all the things that happen there and all of the policy and governance failures and all of the kind of design issues. That, that, that sort of emerged from those things. I think, I you mean, know, leave, yeah, and the consequence of the, how had had an individuals leave that aside? I think what it will do is it'll actually force us to have the conversation and take it seriously in a way in which good royal commissions often lead to kind of systemic kind of changes. I think, I you mean, know, we'll see that. I think what it will also do is it'll bring us back to the theme that's kind of recurred throughout this conversation, which is that the technology and aspects of the of of the program you know, I, w- I won't make any specific comments about the RoboDebt um royal commission but what I, what i will say is the nature of the kind of technology challenges is you know leave that aside at, at one level there does need to be a lot of focus on thinking about the policy implications mm. for those right and there are a lot of frameworks for how you might solve for some of those policy challenges right um you know, part of it is a question of how you communicate it. Part of it is a question about how do you, uh, how do you communicate? Part of the question is how do you make that sort of understandable and give people a sense of control over it? Part of that is actually about how do you kind of build a trust, a trusting kind of environment or, you know, if Ed Santa was here, he'd say, how do you make it like inherently trustworthy? I mean, mm-hmm. um, and the, Equation on trust is actually a well-established equation. I mean, there's two parts of trust. I mean, one part of trust is an equation around capability, and the other part of trust is an equation around character. And the equation on capability is that you have to believe that whatever you are experiencing or what somebody is doing, is that that, that person is competent and that they can do it reliably. Mm-hmm. Not that it works, but that it works all the time. Um, and the question of character is, you know, that, that whoever, whatever service it is that you're accessing and whoever you're working with does it with integrity. I mean, that there's a set of rules around the way in which it, it, operates, that it is fair, that it is built in fundamental principles of law and policy. Um, but that it's also benevolent. I mean, and now benevolence kind of is a word that's not popular, but that it is done in the interest of the public. I mean, mm-hmm. and. Um, if you can kind of, and, and those, those sorts of things, that's not something that was invented for the purpose of technology. That's actually kind of persisted for a very long period of time. And if you kind of think about that in a public policy context, you can solve for those. I mean, how do we make sure that the service actually works? Yeah. I mean, actually works for the purpose that it was intended to work, um, which clearly wasn't the case. Um, how do we make sure that it works reliably? You know, that people can rely on it both as users and as people that are deploying, that particular tool, and that it does it in a way that actually, again, you know, responds in a way that um, uh, that meets things, but also how does it solve the character question? Is it done with a set of rules that are consistent with what we think of as fair and that are reflected in our laws and in our policy priorities? And is it done in the interests of all people? Is it done in the interests of the public? I mean, and if you can kind of think about that whenever we are thinking about government digital services, and I think that sets up the right framework for us to be able to then think about the next.
0: When we're talking about the next stage, I guess it's good to understand where we currently are now. And to be honest, it's hard to understand where Australia is at in terms of digital identity. So, you've been you've been looking at this closely. So, can you give us a sort of potted summary? Where we, you know, most people would know that New South Wales are doing really well in this space. What about other states and? and at a federal level because it's quite a long and assorted history of of trying to get digital identity up in australia
1: (laughs) it's a long and sorted history and the challenge with it is that the world is dynamic so it's like you know i mean like we've gone through this kind of multiple turns of you know of where where digital identity is going and then then at the same time other things have happened in the rest of the world on you know which in a way, make some of the choices we've made in the past redundant. Yeah. And that's, I think, the challenge of solving in this space. But, you know, and, and some, you know, there's one characterization which will be let's just kind of take our bat and ball away and just leave it to technology to kind of take us to the next stage and then we'll solve it then. There's another version of that, which is actually we do need to solve it because not solving it has kind of led us into this kind of situation. Um New South Wales is very clearly the leading jurisdiction on. Digital services in the country, like there's there's no, nobody that I mean is serious in this space will argue that point. I mean, now we could have an entire podcast about why New South Wales is the leading jurisdiction on that space, but let's just take that as a fact. Um, I think it's, uh, and I think that their progress on digital ID is um, is very interesting and welcome. But at one level, I also have like mixed feelings about it, and the mixed feelings about it is that. Yeah, um, digital services is an opportunity for us as an entire nation to deliver services well for all of our citizens. And it's also, it's it's a bit of a shame that because of the inability of the federal government to take its genuine place in, in the leadership role, you know I mean, to be the sleeping gorilla, you know, Um. Uh, we've kind of ended up in a situation where a state that's leading the way has been able to do it in their state, but also hasn't been able to take advantage of the federal system. And what I mean by that is we have so many laws in this country. We have so much progress. That's where one state leads and the other states are able to follow. You know, there's a framework for the other states to be able to follow. Many of our laws are actually uniform laws of which one state is the legislating state and the other states are the states that follow along. And what I think is kind of a shame is that I don't think we are set up to be able to scale the kind of New South Wales model. I mean, no. Um, others will say that you know those things are you know, I mean reasonably easy to do. Um, I would say we just don't have the back, backing infrastructure. We don't have the backing legislative infrastructure. We don't have the backing things now. More, so more can be done on that. You know, I mean on that front. Um, in terms of the federal government, the federal government has had various bits of legislation pass, not pass, sit in purgatory, to try and get progress on digital ID. But what I think has changed is the imperative to solve that has become much more acute. You know, we saw the cybersecurity challenges in the back half of last year. We've seen, um, we've seen, you know, as you mentioned, the robot inquiry. We've also seen the kind of pressures around, you know, being clearer about the sharing of government data to be able to facilitate digital ID. So my sense is that, you know, we now have an increasing push, but also an ability to focus the energy to delivering those particular outcomes. What is important though is that those outcomes are delivered in a way that is agnostic to the movements in technology more generally. And here I talk about, you know, the shifting nature of the way in which people do identity verification. Yeah. Yeah. There are new things that are called verified credentials or verifiable credentials, which actually mean, um, which I think are very clever ways in which you can use, use physical IDs or, or sort of existing IDs to kind of think about how you think about digital ID. And there's also this kind of big push around decentralized ID. You know, I think people talk about, you know, web one, web two, web three. Yeah. Jack Dorsey sometimes talks about web five. Okay? And in that one, it's not just decentralized transactions, it's actually decentralized ID. Um, a, a kind of popular analogy to kind of think about where sort of ID is going is that in many cases, whenever you're trying to verify yourself or some particular information about yourself to access a service, you're often giving information that actually isn't relevant to that service. So when I'm entering a bar or a nightclub and I'm asked for my driver's license, it's not relevant for the bouncer to know where I live.
0: Mm.
1: It's not relevant for the bouncer to know my driver's license number.
0: Yeah,
1: It's relevant for the bouncer to know my age. Well, yeah, I've, I've got a ball patch, so... It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: going to say, it's been a while since I've been asked for ID, but I love the analogy. Yeah.
1: What the opportunity of digital ID is, is actually, and you know, I mean, as we go forward, verified credentials and decentralized ID is actually being mm. able to deliver that specific piece of information that's actually relevant for the task or the service at hand. You know, and I think what we've learned mm. in Australia over the last year or so, and again, I refer to the kind of back half of last year is that there was a lot of information collected about us that actually didn't wasn't necessary. For the purpose of what we're doing,
0: um, I also had cause recently to to go through the process of doing a um, police check, and oh my yeah. gosh, the amount of information that you that you that you were sharing online on a platform which digital identity would just absolutely solve. So for me, that process uh, I was always a big supporter of digital identity, but doing that process really reinforced to me um, the need for it. Um, so given the complexity that you've outlined, what what's next?
1: Another way to kind of think about how digital identity has gone from the periphery to the centre is, you know, I saw a bunch of comments from the Prime Minister about digital ID last week, right? And they weren't just comments in a press conference because he got a question. They were actually like quite considered and a series of different comments about it. Like the idea that the Prime Minister is talking about digital ID is just not something that's ever happened before. And so I think, you know, the focus the focus of that has become very much at the centre of, you know, policymaking and how we need to think about it. What's the next step on that? I think we've got a series of different strands of work that are underway that need to kind of be resolved. You know what I mean, um, there is the work that's been done at the state level, and New South Wales didn't progress digital ID because. Um, or, or simply because it was forward thinking or simply because it wanted to be, it wanted to shift into the kind of tech space. It did it because actually that is the that is the inexorable path of government services mm. for the next century, right? And that will be the case for all of the other state governments as they deal with it. You know, um, some of the other larger state governments have had to grapple with Some of these challenges, not just legislative, but actually more fundamentally about the organisation of their bureaucracies and who is working on those particular pieces, and that's hampered their growth. But they will need to resolve those things because those things, because this trend is inevitable. Mm. I mean, we saw that during the pandemic, and we saw the importance of being able to stand those things up quickly. Um, We're seeing that in some other jurisdictions internationally that are better at standing up some of these services and how those are really critical to the um, ability for their citizens to survive, let alone, I mean, for them to be able to access um, proper services. So I think we'll see a lot of movement at the state level. Um, We'll see a lot more kind of integration between the federal government and the New South Wales government in particular as the leading state on that. And we're seeing that in terms of the announcement to share data between the federal government and the state government on Medicare and the New South Wales driver's license. Mm. Um, so we're kind of seeing a bit more development on that space at the state level. I think we'll see a legislative push in the federal sphere to, to tidy up the disparate legislative frameworks that are underway. Yeah, And I think we'll also have a push to try and find a little bit more consolidation of the various digital ID products that have kind of emerged within the federal government itself. Mm. I mean, like they are multiple streams of what digital ID actually means in the federal government, it will shock people to know that there is MyGov and there's MyGov digital ID Mm -hmm. and the two things are not actually connected to each other. (laughs) They're actually, yeah, so the two separate products sound almost the same, frustrates citizens. When we did our research for the audit panel, it frustrated citizens because they just don't know what means what. Mm. And so, all of those things are things that I think will get tidied up. Mm. They'll just have to get tidied up. It's not—it's not really a question that, because it's now the, at the centre of government.
0: And one of the things—and this report literally, I think, dropped maybe two hours ago—but the Productivity Commission report into government services. One of the things that was interesting about that—it also, like, uh, like the review into um, MyGov and the MyGov audit that that you guys did over the summer—it's also recommending um, uh, digital identity. It is, though, saying digital identity um, not just for government services, but also for business, um, so that you have one uh, digital ID uh, that works across all of those different platforms. Was that something that you grappled with, or or have thought about? Do you think that is a good idea?
1: We definitely thought about it. I think, um, and it wasn't that there was a conclusion made. We just uh, we focused our attention on the government piece. Mm. I'll just maybe bring this back to principle. Right at a principle level. You, know, you want efficiency in digital yep. id and efficiency in this case actually equates to security in a sense i mean like efficiency means that you can um you know decentralize the nature of the types of information that you're sharing and so it gives you that kind of things there's also a principle of competition mm. and innovation right and um in many you know in many cases some of the things that have hampered our ability to get the right right legislative framework up have been because we've kind of tried to prioritize certain principles at the wrong part of the chain but it is important to think about it is important not to ignore the competition and innovation angle which is how do we create space for other providers to be mm. able to mm. in a sense support these particular changes and how does that why is that an important feature mm. of the system and why is that important for us to do that because it may allow us to shift into Newer spaces like those verifiable credentials that I that I spoke of, right? Mm. I know where I would sit on that, and I would index towards the kind of efficiency and security point. But I do, but I think it is important to recognise that there are multiple perspectives here mm. around what principles you're trying to sort of solve for. Um, I think, act- I think on that on that efficiency point, I actually think that if you got to a stage um, where there was a credible centralized kind of mm. System or centralizes, you know, carries a lot of connotations. I don't mean that, but what I mean is like a a dominant, government supported sort of digital ID. um I do think that a lot of businesses would sign up to it, so I think the market would actually end up providing the signal for that. So, you know, it, it maybe that in practice, actually, what mm. I just sort of discussed around the different principles for how you might think about that don't actually play out. But I do think it's important not to ignore those principles and to think about mm. what, um, what those things are that. Are important to the design the market design of what the digital id is and i go back to the original point that i started with when we started talking about digital id is that we have come to our history our australian history in digital id through twists and turns but because but but we are here for a reason and understanding a little bit more of that reason helps us then think about what the kind of next stage in the future Country. yeah,
0: and Australia's relationship with government is so different to the relationship of so many countries. You know That's if you went to uh, the US or in many countries in Europe, you know the the uh, it is chalk and cheese uh, in terms of what we expect from government and the government services that are pro- provided. I had an interesting dinner party conversation, which I won't rehash in full here, but uh, with people speculating right back to Australia's convict beginnings when we sort of were offloaded off the ships and uh, and actually it was Her Majesty's government that was providing for the people and the, the, the flow from that. But as you say, it's a very complex and long discussion. So
1: The most important thing is not to ignore it. The most important thing is we do need to actually take take that into account. Yeah.
0: Taking into account the different perspectives that we have from government, I mean, Bill Shorten has referred repeatedly to um, wanting to implement or, or taking Australia forward with digital identity replicating. Uh, the Estonian model. Um, we've had uh, Paul Fletcher, who um, was actually our first guest on this podcast when he was Minister for Communications. Um, he is now Shadow Minister and, and has one of the longest titles, I think, in government. A head of Opposition Business made the made the observation about India uh, being a good model. Um, we've seen the EU Parliament this week come out and say that they're about to start negotiations for an EU-wide digital ID. I mean, we think our uh, our states and federal is complicated. Imagine doing it with 27 countries. So, what lessons do you think are positive lessons or good examples that we should be looking at as Australia is embarking upon this? In a, in, you know, we're not starting from the beginning, but we are perhaps, um, you know, looking at it seriously for the first time. As you say, the gorilla is waking up.
1: Um, I should have said this at the beginning. The work that we did on the MyGov user audit is a report to government. It's been considered by the government. Their recommendations to the government. The government will choose how it wants to go forward. But one of the things that we wanted to do in that work was also pa- paint a picture of where we think this should go. You know I mean, we weren't we weren't pretending to be comprehensive about you know the future, but we wanted to kind of give a sense that this was this wasn't a case of you know re- accept all the recommendations and job done. This was actually about how do we paint a picture about where we need to go and how we need to start thinking about it differently and. One of the things that I think we wanted to contribute to that was the nature of international examples and how they sort of worked out. And there's actually, for your listeners that are interested, there is a um, there is an entire appendix that basically looks at a range of other jurisdictions and compares other jurisdictions and where we can take lessons and where where we need to go from there. The starting point, I would say, on how we think about our journey from here is. To think about our journey as being unique in of itself right like it doesn't you know um there are going to be elements of other jurisdictions that are going to be important for us to think about you know estonia for the you know i mean estonia in terms of the way in which it thinks about you know i mean digital id and at the back end but actually it's front end and kind of user experience is not as crash hot as we would you know i mean typically think i mean um the danish i think have a very interesting kind of model in the way in which they have they have built their systems. I think. Um, Um, I think there are also uh, other examples that are really interesting that are a bit outside of the box. I mean, I think that the Ukrainian system, the DIA in in Ukraine, I think is a very, very interesting kind of model of digital interaction, but actually it's the the way it was built in terms of, you know, the um, ability for people to Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I mean, innovate on top of it and to be able to access those things has actually meant that, I can't remember the stats, but it's like a, it's an incredibly powerful tool to connect people to their government, particularly in a disruptive environment as they have had for over a year. Um, I'm not saying that we would take the entire model, but I'm saying there are interesting features to pull from them. And that's how I think Mm -hmm. of this kind of, uh, the the answer to your question is like, what are the interesting features we're going to pull? Some of those are around digital ID. Some of those are around the user experience and the custom and the citizen centricity of the exercise. Some of them are around how do you build an ecosystem of other partners that are not just the government as the developers, but how do you kind of build in other partners to be mm. part of that equation? Yeah. Some of them, some of those questions are actually questions around how do we borrow governance? I you mean, know, and the nature of the governance systems around those. And so, even in places that are not necessarily, you know, that come to the top of the list, some of their governance structures are very interesting. I think the UK's governance structures are, I mean, are particularly interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, this European conversation goes and government structures there. Some states in the U.S. are trialing new versions of um, accessing decentralized ID. New Jersey is doing you know, different pilots and thinking about verified credentials. So I think there's. I think it's about borrowing different bits and pieces for those to create our kind of unique piece. But I think it's also being real about the fact that this is now a... Mm mainstream policy conversation. So we don't need to be scared about looking at that in the same way in which we would be designing health policy or the same way in which we would be designing education policy, et cetera, et cetera.
0: It was interesting too, in a speech you gave yesterday, um, Jim Chalmers, our treasurer, did seem to flag that digital identity was coming, which um, coming from the treasurer is uh, always an interesting thing because Obviously, uh, the, the finances are a really important part. And as I understand it, hadn't actually been funded in the budget going forward. So um, that was an interesting message coming out from him. Um, so, I mean, we're coming up to time. I think maybe if we can perhaps focus the last little bit looking at the policy challenges and solutions uh, in, this, in this space, what is one policy solution that you have identified that you think we absolutely need to prioritise, that if we're going to go forward on digital identity, that we we can't go forward unless we nail and implement a particular solution? And then what is one particular challenge that you have identified that maybe we don't yet have a solution for, but you think we really need to be focusing people's minds on and and collectively applying our effort to, to um, come up with a solution to that particular challenge? Uh,
1: they're both very good questions. I actually think I probably could answer both with with one thing, which is I think we we are going to get the great market. You know, what I call the market design doesn't really mean that, but what, what I mean by we're going to get the design elements of how we think about the digital ID settled through a through a process. I, I feel like you know, I mean it's now the imperative is very clear, and we're going to get that right. What I think is important is that because this is now a mainstream issue. Is what are the, what's the protective infrastructure to kind of do that? You know, what's the way in which we give people confidence that when digital ID is implemented, they are a set of protections that exist in the law for them. And I feel like that, to me, is actually almost, in a sense, critical that it happens concurrently, if not precedes it. I mean, people need to feel confident that yeah. what's happening here is actually something that prevents situations like robo debt that prevent. You know, I mean, that avoids. You know, you know, huge amounts of like breaches of privacy that ensure that you know, I mean their identity is protected and that there is recourse for that. So to me, that's the kind of piece of the w- piece of work that I think is really important to do. Now, the second part of your question is, you know, how do we solve those where we don't have a complete solution? Is giving people confidence mm-hmm. and trust is actually an evolving issue and it's an evolving yeah. question. So. We need to have the protective kind of infrastructure for that, but we also need to be thinking about trust in an evolving way. I mean, um, trust sometimes can be gained just by communicating purposefully and explaining. I mean, but we but those channels for doing that are constantly evolving. The way in which we teach our generation, we, we know from research that people's expectations of government digital services are framed by their experience of digital services in the broader economy but and now we and today with each with each generation we are finding an increasingly more digitally literate but also more digitally active and engaged generation and how are they going to influence the way in which we think about some of these questions but how are they also perceiving those digital protect how are those, they're perceiving that digital experience in a way that makes them feel safe that makes them feel empowered that makes them feel that they have you know, in all of the kind of qualities of being a citizen or being an individual in a particular society. And so all of those particular things I think are things that, first of all, there's work that you can do and we know what that list of things are, but we need to constantly be working on those because that challenge evolves as time passes. Yeah. I'd also add one other kind of, I mean, bonus if I could. Please do. I think one of the other kind of aspects of this is also improving overall Public sector capability mm-hmm. and public sector capability. Whenever we talk about digital services, then immediately gets people thinking we need to go hire more systems integrators and more software engineers and more solution architects. And that's not actually what I mean. What I mean is we need to, that, that's part of what I mean. But what I actually mean is we need to build an understanding about the role that digital services and technology can play in government, in the delivery of government, and in the design of government throughout the entire public service. And I go back to what I said right at the beginning about why I'm excited about this period is because in order to unlock the financial benefit or the efficiencies that will come with embracing digital services, you need to have a better approach to digital and data, and you need to shift the conversation that we have on public service and public sector reform to thinking about what the next 20 years looks like rather than trying to revert back to a model of how the public service worked in
0: 1990. Yeah. It would not surprise you, Amit, to uh, hear me say that I am in violent agreement with both of those things. Um, it is absolutely vital that we have those uh, protective frameworks uh, in place and clearly communicated uh, if digital identity is going to be uh, a success in Australia. And you look at you know, confusion around COVID check-in app, I think, is a is a really good example of where yeah. um, if you don't get the communication piece right as well, it's an own goal, and also the importance of of upskilling and and having every public servant understand that technology is a core part of their job, and technology policy is a core part of public policy now, uh, and it's it's not something that a bunch of specialists are doing over here on the side. Um, and you know, that really goes back to to the mission of, uh, of the tech policy design center here and also the podcast, right? We want we want this podcast to be out there helping people to to get their heads around um, these issues. And you have done such a good job of helping us to do that today. So we're going to wrap up with the last question uh, that we give all of our guests, which is, if you have someone who is looking to either get involved in technology policy issues more broadly or look un- and understand digital identity, and I really recommend um, the uh, MyGov audit report, um, particularly the annexes you were referring to. I think they're very good. Um, but wh- what do you recommend that people read or subscribe to? Where do you, How do you keep up to date?
1: I'm not a great reader.
0: I don't believe that. It'll,
1: it'll shock you to know, but... You know, Kate Pounder, who's our friend at the tech council, sends me a book once a year yeah. and I maybe read that book. But, about it. <laughs> I mean, um, but but for the record, the last book she sent me is actually a really interesting one, which is called The Power Law, which is essentially about the growth of venture capital and how it sort of influences the way in which we think about different aspects of technology ah. and, in particular, the policy and regulatory kind of arrangements. I wrote. It's by a guy named Sebastian Malaby. And and one of the things I think that okay. was particularly influential in kind of thinking about these questions and digital ID and digital government is there's actually a book by a guy named Jamie Suskin called The Digital Republic, which I think is almost in a way mandatory reading, but it's also very easy to read. It's actually a a super easy
0: book. We we actually had Jamie on the pod a couple of episodes ago, so um, uh, there's also a podcast episode with Jamie.
1: Um, Amazing. Um, uh, I think for me, I actually find the interesting things in... Um, articles that are written all a whole, you know, by a whole range of different um, providers. But one of my favorite current ones is there's a new newsletter um, done by a group in Washington DC called Semaphore and they have a particular Ooh. tech element to it. And the tech articles in those I think are really interesting because it is done by policy people in Washington DC talking about technology and not the usual newsletters or newspaper articles that I typically read, which is written by people in san francisco that are writing tech articles and its implications on policy and so yeah. i've been in, particularly enjoying semaphore's piece um semaphore's pieces on the kind of tech industry and on you know, in particular and generative ai on topics like um on topics like um how we think about digital id how do we think about you know, i mean a bunch of different questions but i think yeah, semaphores, technology kind of element is, I think, particularly interesting to
0: me. Ah, brilliant. Thank you very much. We will duly add um, links in the in the pod notes. Thank you so much. I, mean, I knew this was going to be a fabulous conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and hope to see you in person very soon.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Hannah.
0: Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.